We'll be reading from Psalm 64. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. For they aimed bitter speech as their arrow, to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly, they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, we are ready with a well-conceived plot, for the inward thought and the heart of a man are deep. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly, they will be wounded. So they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake their head. Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of the Lord, and all will consider what he has done. The righteous man will be glad in the Lord and take refuge in him, and all the upright in heart will glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word for this day. I pray that you would just open our hearts to receive what you have for us through Rick this morning, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. September 11th, 2001 began like every other day begins. People were on their way to work. Children were on their way to school. Life was going on as usual, the way you would expect any other day. But that drastically, dramatically changed. It suddenly changed in a moment. And we just marked this day just a few days ago. In, at 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 flew into the North Tower of the World Trade Center complex. I mean, literally a flying missile filled with over 20,000 gallons of jet fuel plowed, smashed itself into the 80th story of the iconic skyscraper. And suddenly like that, Hundreds of lives are erased, and hundreds more lives in the floors above trapped. And rescue operations are already on the way when 18 minutes later, a second Boeing 767 United Airlines Flight 175 flying at 590 miles per hour flies into the South Tower, hitting the 60th floor of the building. And suddenly, just like that, hundreds more lives taken and all the lives endangered, every life above that floor endangered. And it became very obvious to all of us in this country, and I would say even all of us around the world, that we were suddenly under attack that morning. At 9.45 a.m., a third airplane, American Airlines Flight 77, it barrels into the west side of the Pentagon, just outside of Washington, D.C. And just like that, more lives are taken. Suddenly, out of nowhere, 125 military lives are taken, plus the 64 that are on the plane, erased from the planet. At 10 a.m., we watch in horror as that first World Trade Tower collapses. And if you know anything about how these buildings are engineered, this is this steel is made to withstand over 200 mile an hour winds. 
It's made, it's constructed, it's put together in such a way that it's meant to sustain a conventional fire, a heavy fire, and yet the jet fuel was burning at such a high temperature that it melted the steel and it all collapsed under its own weight. Not that much later, at 10 10 a.m., United Flight 93 crashes into that field in Pennsylvania. And if not for the courage of a few, it would have been even more devastation, even more murder that takes place that day. And then at 10.30 a.m., we all watch as the second World Trade Center tower as it goes down in this massive cloud of smoke and dust. That's the morning of September 11, 2001. 19 militants, Islamic extremists, enemies of this nation, suddenly attacked and they suddenly hijacked these planes and they murdered over 3,000 people in ultimately what is just a matter of seconds. And we have to understand that this is the world that we live in. We live in a world where things happen suddenly, tragic things, awful things, dreadful things happen, and they endanger our lives, and they're meant to cause us harm and to hurt us profoundly and, and we live in this world, and, and I can't think of any other way of, think, of putting it, but saying that we live in a world of suddenly, when suddenly calamity can happen, and it can come across us in a flash. Like, all of a sudden, at a moment's notice, this, this nightmare that we've had can happen. And in this world, this suddenly world that we live in, even that which we can't even fathom could happen, the unimaginable evil like 9-11 can take place in a moment, just like that, suddenly out of nowhere. And the reality is that we live in this world where this can happen to us, around us, at us, at any, any moment. But there is good news. There is great news. There is wonderful news that though we live in a world of suddenly... We live under the care of a God of suddenly. That while we live in a world where enemies do attack, when uh, we get assaulted from every direction, when things come out us from every avenue and from every angle, just as suddenly as we're attacked, our God can appear suddenly and protect us and defend us and take care of us. Psalm chapter 33 verse 20 says this, Our soul waits. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Enemies can unexpectedly come out of nowhere. They can raise their weapons against us. But this God who is over us, who loves us, he is watching us. And he can suddenly blaze in and take care of us when the world suddenly attacks us. That's good news. That's profoundly, profoundly good news. God is, he's our shield. He's our protector. He's our defender. He's our champion. It's the God that we were singing about just a while ago. These songs, vanquishing Satan, 
The Son of God calling us one day to be with the Lord, one day with Him forever. This God who is always with us. That's the God that we're here to worship and to hear from this morning. So last week we began this sermon series. It's an entitled Suddenly. And what we're doing in this series is that we're learning how to live with a hope knowing that God is the God of suddenly. That God at any moment, just like that, can do a miraculous and astounding work in your life. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask and think. And it's not just that he can do miraculously above and beyond what we can fathom. It's not just that, it's that he can do it just like that. That he can do it when we don't expect it, that he can do it when we need it most that he can blaze in, in a blaze of glory as only God can, and rescue us and deliver us and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And that's fight battles that we can't win, that only he can win to protect us and to defend us. And so if you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, uh, please go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is in the Old Testament. It's pretty much right smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 69. So Psalms is between Job and Proverbs. We're going to be lo- I'm sorry, 64. Psalm 64. I'm sure people in the tech booth just had a fit. Like, I thought you said it was Psalm 64. So anyway, all right. And uh, Psalm 64, what we're going to be looking at specifically is this, is that God is the God of suddenly and that God suddenly shows up and protects us. That he is a God that that just shows up, that we can count on him. We can have confidence in God. We can live with a hope knowing that God is our shield and our protector. Not only in the good times, but probably for most of us, especially in the hard times when things get difficult. So let's go ahead and get into the text here. Psalm 64 verse 1 says, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint preserve my life from dread of the enemy. I I will say that the book of Psalms is my favorite book of the Bible for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons why it is is because the book of Psalms is real. Like like you see real life, and, and many of the Psalms are written by David, and he is just very open and very transparent with his emotions and what he's wrestling with and what he's going through. And, and here in this psalm, there in verse 1, you, you hear his heart. He is pouring his heart out to God. He's making an impassioned plea for God's help. And, and the way when I read it, I hear desperation in the words, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life. There's desperation there. And and what you have to know about David is that he, throughout his life, he faced many, many enemies. Constantly, it seems like, if you were to read his story, uh, he takes on Goliath, like this nine-foot-tall beast behemoth of a man, this Philistine, Philistine, sworn enemies of God and sworn enemies of God's people. On top of that, King Saul is constantly pursuing him, attacking him, persecuting David, has him on the run. And at one point, one of his sons, Absalom, turns against him, turns against him. So he was constantly always under attack. 
He was also always facing enemies. And in the psalm, David does the only thing any of us can do when we come face to face with attack and with enemies and with struggle and with strife. He prays. I mean, at the end of the day, is there anything else we can do? Like, what else is there to do? Where else is there to turn but to turn to God and to throw ourselves at his mercy, to ask for his, his grace? It, it does say there in verse 1, he says, I, I, in my complaint, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. And complaint there doesn't mean complaining as in grumbling. It literally means concern. He's saying that he's lifting his concerns up to God. He's petitioning God. He's, ra- he's bringing his troubles, his struggles, his trials before God. So that's what he's doing. He's praying to him. And I want to note here that there is great confidence in this verse 1. That this isn't a negative thing. There is massive confidence. Hear my voice Oh, God, and it's not a demand. This is faith. This is what faith looks like. He, he believes, he trusts in the grace of God. Hear my voice. Hear me, God. He knows that God will listen. David knows that God sits in heaven and desires to hear from you. That's grace. And I think sometimes we think about prayer so much that we we trivialize it. I mean, think about what prayer is. There is an almighty God who created everything out of nothing with no help from anything or anyone else who rules over existence without rival. He is clothed in splendor and in majesty, and he watches over every atom and every galaxy in the universe. He orchestrates all energy and time from his very throne. And what does he do? He bends down to listen to you. That's grace. That there is this king sitting upon his divine throne and then he inclines his ear down. Like he takes a knee, like we might with our child, take a knee in front and gets right in front of us and says, tell me, I'll listen. And so that's what prayer is. In in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what prayer is. Prayer is an exercise in faith. It is trusting, excuse me, trusting in the grace of God, not only to listen to us, but to intervene on our behalf, to fight the battles that we can't fight, to protect us from that from which we need protecting from. That's precisely what prayer is. David is putting his faith in God that God has got it. Now, here's a question. How do we know that we can trust God? Bonus question, right? Challenge round, lightning round. How do we know that we can trust God God, that he will actually listen to us and that he does care enough to intervene to help us? 
How do we know that when the world attacks, when enemies come at us, when stuff is hurling our way, when missiles and bombs are dropping all over us, how do we know that God listens to us and will step in? And I'm going to tell you how I know this. See, I know that God will step into my present and step into my future because of what he's done in the past. I know that God will battle my battles today and tomorrow because 2,000 years ago, he battled the greatest battle that's ever been battled and he walked out of it victorious. For 2,000 years ago, Jesus was nailed to a cross and on that cross, he became our shield. He became my shield. Like in that moment, what happens is that I get to hide behind him and he stood between me and what it is that I deserve because I'm a, I am a sinner. I do sin and God has warned that the wages of sin is death. There are consequences, there are eternal consequences to sinning against the holiness and the righteousness of God. And God has warned us about this. And so, but he's got the plan. He says, I will send my shield down because it, it it has to be exercised. Divine justice has to be meted out. And Jesus says, I will protect you. I will block you from it. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And like a shield, he bore the full brunt of God's wrath, of his indignation toward us. So much so that he actually descended into death. And so there Jesus is in the grave. And there is where he became my champion. Because it was in those three days in death where he literally grabbed death by the throat and he choked it out. Where he stepped into darkness and he dispensed it. He stood up three days later after the cross. Stood up, opened his eyes, walked out of the grave. Victor, victorious, champion. Well, if he did that for me 2,000 years ago, and sin is my greatest enemy, and it is, and the consequences of sin, my greatest enemy, and it is, and if Jesus can defeat my greatest enemy, well, surely he can handle my foes today. Surely he can handle my battles today. He can, he can do the stuff for me today that I need delivering from if he did that for me 2,000 years ago. So before we go any further this morning, I think the question is begged. Have you had that moment where you have seen Jesus as your shield and as your protector? Have you had that moment of faith, of clarity, where you actually see what he accomplished on your behalf on the cross and in the grave? Have you had that moment of clarity, spiritual clarity, where the light of God shines into your heart and all of a sudden you do see your sin for the enemy that it is, that you see it as something that you cannot defeat, as something that rules over you and is leading you toward destruction. And in that moment, see Jesus for who he is as the Savior who can rescue you out of that. Have you placed your faith in Christ? And the reality is, and this never gets old, 
the reality is God loves us so much in Jesus and the cross. The gospel proves it beyond all doubt. Beyond, it proves it. And now all that is required or asked is place our faith in Christ. Place our faith in what he did on the cross and follow. Faith and follow. Faith and follow. And here's the plus. Here's the perk. We all like perks, right? All who place their faith in Jesus, all who become followers of Jesus, here's the perk. God will defend you. God protects those who are his followers. It is a promise from God. He is our shield. He is our refuge. He is our strength in every way. And David was a follower. David was a follower. He had great faith in the Lord. And then here's where we get back into why I love the psalm so much. David, David, if you know the story of David, David's a big deal. Stud. He's a total stud. It actually tells us he's a stud because he's good looking. But not only that, like valiant wise, like my man, he was a superhero, quite honestly. He killed lions. He like killed lions. He killed Goliath as a teen. He's basically the cast of the expendables all by himself back in the day. I mean, that's who David is. And then it tells us in verse what in verse one, he's praying to God, preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Dread means trembling in the Hebrew. David was afraid. Even David got scared. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, have you ever had a moment where it's stuff is coming at you, whether it's finances or job or work, employment, kids, relationships, whatever it may be, family stuff, whatever it may be, and you got to the point where you were genuinely scared. Where you're filled with angst. Where you're, 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 you have this sense of dread and internal turmoil, stress, maybe a sense of foreboding. Like there is no hope. Have you ever gotten there in your life? And uh, if you have, or maybe if you're there now, I would say take a book, take a, take a page out of David's book. Psalm 64, what does David do? He prays. He prays. He prays. He asks God. He's like, God, I am nervous. I'm scared. I'm fearful. I'm full of angst. Lord, preserve me. Help me. Safeguard me in every way. I, I, what I was thinking as I was thinking through this, like, really, David knew the words of Philippians chapter 4 a thousand years before Paul wrote them. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we are under attack, when the world is hurling its mess at us, when things are going downhill and they're going downhill quickly, when that happens, know this, that the battleground is not your bank account. The, bank, the, the battleground is not the doctor's office. It's not the, the, the medical treatment. It's not your health. That's not the battleground. The battleground is not actually your family. That's not the battleground. The battleground is your heart. The battleground is your heart. And when the good news is that actually God fights in our heart 
for our heart. He fights in our heart for our heart. He promises to guard our hearts from the assaults and the attacks of those who would do us wrong, to, to be our shield, to be our, our sentinel. And here's the thing, when, not if, but when the stuff comes at us, when it hurls its way at us, when bombs and missiles are dropping all over us figuratively in our lives, and it happens all the time, when it happens, we don't have to settle for dread. We don't have to settle for fear or for trembling. God has promised, pray in my peace that surpasses all comprehension. He freely gives it, and it comes around our guard, and it shields it. It protects our heart. We're caught in this war. There is a spiritual war happening all around us, and prayer is actually the first line of defense. I mean, that's, that's the go-to place. And because of that, I think it's important that we take some time and evaluate our, our prayer time, our time with the Lord, our prayer life. How much time are we spending in prayer before God? How much time, what are we praying about when we pray? Are we being open and honest with God? Are we bringing our concerns up to Him? Are we asking for His peace that surpasses understanding to, to infiltrate our hearts? And, and clearly, we're supposed to do this by ourselves, but then there's another component, and we talked about this last week, and that's the importance of not just praying persistently, not just the importance of praying fervently, but the importance of praying corporately, that we share our prayer requests with one another, our lives with one another, and that we hold each other up in, in our prayers. And, and I love what's been happening uh, in the life of our church, you know, as people are getting plugged in and, and understanding and getting in small groups and getting to know each other, emails are starting to fly around a little bit more. Hey, can you please pray for this for me? Hey, we know something's going on with so-and-so. Can you pray for them? There are texts that are happening where people, hey, pray for me. Something just happened or whatever cases. And that this is supposed to characterize a church that we're praying together. And this is one of the reasons why on Thursday, this Thursday, we're starting this monthly prayer service. And, and I don't think a month, once a month is even enough, but I, it's something. And I know everyone's really busy, but we're only asking one hour out of an entire month. And I, I quoted you, John, last week when I said, you know, that, that one of the reasons that we, we struggle to put this service in line is because we know how busy everyone is. And that you had actually said, we're not, we don't need to apologize for asking people to do what matters. And, and I agree with that. So once a month, on a Thursday night, 6.45 for an hour, hour and 15 minutes, we're going to gather here. And we're going to pray for one another. That God would guard our hearts. Because we're all under attack. It all comes at us. So watch your prayer life. What are you doing? What are you doing on your own? And are you praying with other believers? All right, let's move on. And in Psalm 64 verse 1 David specifically asked for God to protect him from the enemy now the question is who is the enemy I've been using that word quite a bit this morning the enemy the enemy the enemy who pray tell is the enemy um well let's uh let's discuss first who the enemy is not the enemy is not the person who cuts you off in traffic it may feel like it the person uh the person who is not your enemy is the person that won't let you merge into the lane it may feel like it at the moment, but that's not our enemy, okay? Uh, the enemy is not the person who eats the last piece of bacon. I know, right? Like that, that's about as close as you can get from, from enemy status and not actually cross over into enemy status. Uh, the enemy is not the person who is rude to you. 
That's not the enemy. The person who either one time or over a long season has hurled insults at you, that's not the enemy. Uh, the, the truth is, in, in talking about Christians, with Christians, among Christian family, um, we all sin, and we are highly capable of hurting each other and insulting each other and disrespecting each other. I, that happens all the time. I, I, I don't say w- if I disappoint you. I am certain that I will if I haven't already uh, as a pastor. I, I know this. And if you haven't already, I know that one day you will hurt me, devastate me, blah, blah, blah. Okay? But we're not each other's enemy. We're just people trying to do the best we can, right? And so we extend grace. But anyway, we're not the enemy. Who is, who is the enemy? The enemy is those who plot against God and God's people and God's mission. And that's what this psalm is talking about. These people who counsel together, who conspire together, people who are adamantly, intentionally doing harm to the church and to the mission of the church. David was a follower of God, right? David was a follower. He's a servant of the Lord, and God gave him a very specific mission in David's life. There are certain things God wanted David to do, and so there were these individuals, these people, these enemies that would come in, and they would do everything that they could to wreck house, to keep David from doing what God had called him to do. It's the same for us. We are Christians, those of us who are followers of Jesus, who've placed our faith in him, we're part of the church. We have a mission, and that mission is to shine the light of Jesus, to be imitators of Christ in this world, to be love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus, and helping others to become that as well. That's our mission. And so it is those who gather in secret and do counsel together directly in opposition of that those folks are technically, or, or Scripture would call them, our enemies. And I think we need to recognize how this enemy comes at us when they come at us. So we can recognize these weapons and, and maybe stand guard and stand fast and not be so easily moved. So to know what the weapons are, we've got to read verses 3 through 6. Who have, and it's talking about these enemies, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying we are ready with a well-conceived plot. These verses give us, tell us what these three weapons are. There are others, but these verses give us three weapons that our enemies use against the church and God and God's mission. And the first one in the arsenal is speech. Actual words. Actual word, bitter speech. Verse 3, they use bitter speech and they use it as an arrow. They verbally assault us. Like words can be piercing. Have you ever been on the receiving end of an ill word? They can be destructive. They can be completely piercing. There, there are a few lies as big as sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is false. That is way false. It is, right? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I, it is absolutely what, how much we can be discouraged by one verbal attack. And that when it comes from the enemies, you, usually, if not all the time, the, they're lies. 
hey, you're really not all of this. You're really all that. Hey, remember, you're nothing but a sinner. Hey, remember what you used to do, how you used to be? You're not much better now, right? And it's all meant to discourage us, to, to fill us full of guilt and shame. Well, guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus, all that's gone away. We don't have to listen to the lies. We can actually rebuke the lies of the enemy because Jesus doesn't hold that stuff against us anymore. So we're not going to let our adversary launch those words at us anymore. So that's the first thing that the enemy does. It, it, it launches these speech attacks to us, and it happens to us. Guess what? It happened to Jesus. Jesus on the cross, he's nailed to wood, and what are people doing? They are mocking him to his face. So they did it to him. So we should expect the same. The second weapon in the, the enemy's arsenal is temptation. Verse 5 says that they lay snares. They lay snares for us. They try to tempt us into sin. To, they try to lure us into following after their ways as opposed to following after God's way. Folks, this is like they're, they're trying to make us to join the, their team. It's really what they're trying to do, right? This is the oldest trick in the book. Go back to Genesis 3. This is exactly what the devil did to Eve. He tempted her. He tempted her to eat of the forbidden fruit, promising happiness and joy and fulfillment in something other than God. That's the oldest trick that there is. Trying to lure us into thinking that, there, that happiness is found in the things of the world. And so this is how the enemy operates. You know, if, if he can't discourage us by just being mean with mean words to us, can't do that, well, maybe he'll tempt us. He'll tempt us. I mean, he knows if we can get discouraged, we won't be on mission. If we get discouraged, we'll kind of lock in, and, and then we're all just worried about ourselves, right? It becomes all about me. We retreat. We can't be on mission. It, it, you can't grow as a follower of Jesus if you're discouraged, if you're letting lies beat you down. The same thing with temptation, falling into sin, falling into its entanglements. We can't advance God's mission in our hearts, let alone the hearts of other individuals. So those are the first two weapons. And the third weapon is injustice. Verse 6 says that the enemy devises injustice, acts of evil. So if speech, bad words, mean words won't do it, if trying to get you to sin won't do it, he will absolutely go nuclear on you. And that's what the, these acts of evil, devising injustices, is plotting malice and maltreatment in our lives. This is what the Pharisees and Judas did to Jesus. They plotted together in secret at night to betray Jesus, to kill Jesus. And folks, this is the greatest injustice that has ever taken place in the history of injustices that you have this group of people that simply hated Christ. And he never did anything wrong. He fed people. He healed sick people. He spoke truth with grace. Like he was kind and generous to individuals looking after them. He never did anything wrong, but they plotted against him. And what they did is that they arrested him illegally. They brought him into an illegal trial at night under secret cover. They hurled trumped up false accusations at him, put up witnesses, false witnesses to give false testimony about Jesus. 
made up the whole thing, said he's guilty, handed him over to the Romans, lied to the Romans about who Jesus is or what he had done or had not done. Then when the Romans says, oh, he's really not guilty, but uh, we'll give everyone an option. They can, like, we can free Jesus or we can free this other guy who was a criminal. The Pharisees and these people conspire and they get the entire crowd to vote for the release of the criminal over innocent Jesus. And as he's declared guilty, they go to work on him. And with their fists, they begin to pound on him. Literally, the scripture tells us they slapped him on the face. They beat him. And soldiers took these, these whips and they, they whipped him and they had these briars. And every time they had to tug back and it would rip the flesh. And after doing, they're laughing at him, mocking him. They, they twisted these thorns into a crown and they shoved it onto his head. And then they nailed him to a cross to let him die by asphyxiation where the only way to breathe is to pull up and push up on the nails that have been driven through nerve and bone and muscle. Folks, the world has never known injustice like that. And it's amazing the speed and the harshness at which these attacks get leveled, at, whether it's words, whether it's temptation, whether it's injustice, we live in this world where suddenly evil takes place and gets hurled not only at Jesus, but at all who follow him. And then we come back to the but. But there is hope. And that's what verse 7 is. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Wait for it. Suddenly they will be wounded. What an incredible verse that is. And honestly, I think I could spend hours unpacking everything in this one verse, but I'm, I'm only going to comment on two things. And the first one should be obvious because it is what we've been talking about today and we discussed last week, and that is that, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you can rejoice in knowing, in knowing that God fights your battles. And that's what verse 7 says, that in the midst of enemy attack, in the midst of the world doing its thing, in the midst of spiritual bombs going off all over the place, in the midst of what would seem completely, utterly hopeless, suddenly God fights the battle for us. He comes in and he fights for us to protect us from that which we can't protect ourselves from. And so we rejoice, and that's verse 10. The righteous man will be glad, the righteous man and the righteous woman, righteous meaning those who are followers of Christ, who've given their faith over to him, they're glad, they're happy, they're blessed in the Lord. They take refuge in him, and all the upright in heart will glory in Christ, knowing that he has got it. He protects us. All we need to do is stand firm. And this is the beautiful thing about the scripture. It just says stand firm. Just be strong and courageous. Stand firm in your faith and let God do 
his thing. God is the God, and suddenly, he suddenly shows up, blaze the glory, and he gets all the credit, and man, it is awesomeness for him to do what only he can do in, in our lives. And the second thing I'll point out in, in the verse here is that because God fights our fights, all right, here's the hard part. Here's the hard part because we're coming to application here. So because God fights our fights, we then extend grace toward those who would seek to do us harm. Because God fights for us, we don't have to fight them. We extend grace toward those who seek to hurt us. In, in the midst of this psalm that David is writing, he's under attack. His heart is rent. He's in dread. But he never wishes ill on the person that's doing him the harm. He doesn't even tell us who it is. He never wishes harm on the individual there. Um, let's just assume for a second that he's writing this in the midst of King Saul persecuting him. King Saul, like David was one of King Saul's boys, like, like one of his mighty warriors, like a, just a solid servant. David never did anything to harm Saul. If anything, he was helping Saul. And for some reason, well, for a lot of reasons, Saul turns on him and begins to attack him, persecute him, chases him out of Jerusalem, chases him throughout Israel, chases him out of Israel. David is on the run, living on the run for years, having to live in caves. That's David's life persecuted that's how it was for him and there was one day where David opened this cave and here comes Saul walks into the cave doesn't know David's in there won't mention right now what he went in there to do and but anyway he goes in there so people laugh because they know the story and Saul was so close to David in that cave that David actually cut part of his robe off he could have killed him. Saul persecuted, I mean, sorry, David persecuted on the run for years. Never did anything wrong. Had a knife, and he cut a little bit of the robe off. He could have killed his persecutor. And so Saul leaves. And then David comes to the front of the cave, and he yells out, King! And he shows him the piece of robe. Folks, he showed him grace is what he showed him. In essence, he's like, I could have killed you, but I didn't. You, he may have deserved it, but he didn't get what he deserved. He extended grace to him. And even so, when King Saul ultimately died, you know that David grieved. He mourned after him. David understood that vengeance does not belong to him. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What that means is that don't take matters into your own hands, just leave it in God's hands. Just leave it in God's hands. And I would go so far as, it's, it, we're not sitting there like waiting, wow, you're going to get your own. It's not that attitude. It's an attitude that hoping that between that moment and whenever they come face to face with Jesus, that they have a coming to Jesus moment before them, before then, and that they find grace well before they ever encounter that. So it's praying for them, and that's what Jesus did. Like the greatest example of not showing vengeance in the moment where it could have been given is Jesus on the cross. Almighty God, all-powerful ruler, glorious God, killed by man. And at any point, at any point, 
Jesus could have called down all the angels of heaven and had them annihilated. At any moment, Jesus himself, he doesn't need angels. He could have done it himself and sent fire and brimstone to do away with those that were killing him and torturing him and murdering him. But instead of that, what does Jesus do on the cross? He prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, that's the example of Christ for us. To extend grace, extend grace at all times. And, and he, he, what, what I love about just thinking of it this way is that Jesus, in that moment on the cross, he was offering to be a shield and a protector of those who were attacking him. Like he was offering salvation and grace and hope to them. And that's the same grace that Jesus offers to us today. That's the same grace that he offers to us today is the, that when he goes to the cross 2,000 years ago today, he's saying, I want to be your shield. I want to be your protector. And if all who embrace that, all who succumb to that, then we know that he's our shield and our protector, not just in terms of our eternal salvation, but in terms of our daily living and all this mess that we have to deal with that does get hurled our way. We go through seasons of life in which we're sometimes more under attack than others. You've probably experienced this. If you've been a, a follower of Christ for long, you, you experience it. There are, there are times, maybe a week, a month, a year, an extended amount of time, where it's just heavy. It's heavy, and we've got to recognize that regardless of where it's coming from, right, it's not a boss, it's not the children, it's not that. Those aren't the enemies. At the end of the day, the enemy is the devil himself. And we'll talk a little bit more about this specifically next week, but... The, the great enemy, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 tell us, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. They're rulers and powers and spiritual forces. It's referring to demons, spiritual forces of darkness that roam around trying to just wreak havoc on God's plans and the things of God and God's mission. And the reality is that the more we try to step into our faith and be devoted followers of Jesus, the more we do that, the more the attacks actually do come our way. They, they, they'll grow with intensity. The suddenly will become more constantly as we grow in our faith. And the great news is that stronger is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That there is no need to fear. There's no need to be afraid. There's no need to tremble. There's no need for dread because when the enemy suddenly launches an attack, we've got a God who suddenly steps in. When, the gods, when, when, when these enemies hurl their weapons at our heart to discourage us, suddenly like that, the peace of God comes in to guard our hearts. Right? When the enemies, when the world, when it comes at us, to lure us into sin, to cause temptation, to get us to walk away from God, here comes the wisdom of God suddenly into our hearts and minds, the Spirit of God giving us discernment to keep us from wandering away from Him who loves us. Right? When the enemy plots these injustices, these evil acts to just raise mayhem and chaos in and around our lives, here comes the God of suddenly who is able to rescue us and if he doesn't, he'll give us the grace that gets us through it. God is the God 
of suddenly we're, we're in a real, a real war and this stuff is constantly happening. And I, I don't know if there's anyone in here that's in that season, but good gracious, like, like David would just pray, just bring it to God. Uh, for me and my family, again, I'm going to share this more next week, but um, I'm not one to run quickly to spiritual warfare I, I believe in the devil, I believe what the Bible says, and, but I, I can be a bit skeptical, and I just don't like giving the devil too much credit for a lot of stuff. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, ever since we started this church last December, my family has been under increasing, increasing attack from the enemy. The level of sickness in my family, we can count on one hand the number of weeks, actually just a few fingers, the number of weeks where we've been healthy. Because every week, two or three of us have fevers. And some of you probably heard Ellie coughing this morning and stomach bugs and pink eye and the flu. And it will not go away. We started juicing. We started everything that we know how to, to do to try to avoid this stuff. And it will not stop. And, and it's getting worse. And it coincides with us planting a church in Andrew to shine the light of the gospel in a place that so desperately needs it. And so those forces are ticked. They're ticked. We'll talk more about that next week. So what do me and Jamie do? The only thing we can do. We pray. And we ask for your prayers. We share it with our small group. I had some guys over last week to pray about it. I ask now for prayer. Because I'm, I'm asking God, but I know that I need my fellow brothers and sisters praying on my behalf. I don't want to get distracted from the ministry. I don't want to get discouraged. I don't want these injustices. And it's unjust, folks, because it's not just me. It's my one-year-old. It's my three-year-old. It's my five-year-old. That's unjust. But my God can suddenly step in. My, I know it. In the meantime, I just pray for grace. And it's the same for you. The devil and all his workers will come in and they will try to discourage you, lure your way by temptation, try to bring injustice upon you to discourage you, get you off the field, get you off mission, keep you from enjoying the presence of God in your life. And if that's where you are, pray and put your faith in God that he can appear suddenly and fight those battles for you. You don't have to. Okay, I'm going to ask everyone just to close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm going to give you just a, a quick moment to reflect where you are and for you to respond to the Lord however you need to. Maybe this morning is the morning that you realize that you're still having been shielded from your great enemy. You know, our great enemy is sin and its consequences. So have you asked Jesus to be your shield, to protect you? Have you placed your faith in him? Ask him to remove your sin away from you and give you new life. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe that's how you need to respond. Maybe you're someone and you're, you're going through a difficult season. The world is, is battling you. Enemies are battling you. And if that's you, just start praying now and ask for God's peace. Ask for his grace. Ask for his protection. 
And if you're in a good spot, then just sit there and praise God knowing that whenever it goes bad, that you know that he can suddenly march in and handle your business. Father, you are wonderful and loving and gracious, kind, merciful, forgiving, compassionate. Lord, you, you're the God of suddenly because you're the God of always. You are always close. You're a God with us, Lord. You're always aware of our lives and what we're facing, Lord. And because of that, we can trust that you can come at a moment's notice to blaze in, to help us where we need help, Lord. We praise you for your strength in that, that we can depend on you, that we can live with hope and confidence, not having to fight our battles, but to just simply stand firm in our faith, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the cross and for Jesus and for you offering to remove our sin and our guilt and our shame, Lord. I thank you, Christ, that you gave your life, you interposed yourself, that we may be spared and that we may be close to you. Lord, you are the God who rescues us. You alone can rescue us. You are our shield, our defender, our protector, our warrior, our sentinel. All our hope is in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.